0: Welcome to Tisky Sour on a very big day in British politics. Liz Truss's first full day as Prime Minister and her first Prime Minister's questions. On this momentous day, got a big guest, Owen Jones. Today was Liz Truss's first full day in office and as well as finalising her ministerial appointments, it was also her first chance to go head-to-head with Keir Starmer at PMQs. The standoff focused on how Liz Truss would pay for her plan to freeze energy bills, and her refusal to impose a windfall tax on the excess profits of energy giants, which, according to Treasury
1: figures, could reach as high as £170 billion. The Prime Minister knows she's no choice but to back an energy price freeze. Yes. But it won't be cheap, and the real choice, the political choice, is who is going to pay. Yes. Is she really telling us that she's going to leave these vast excess profits on the table and make working people foot the bill for decades to come.
2: Well, I understand that people across our country are struggling with the cost of living and they're struggling with their energy bills. And that is why I, as Prime Minister, will take immediate action to help people with the cost of their energy bills and I will be making an announcement to this house on that tomorrow and giving people certainty to make sure that they are able to get through this winter and be able to have the energy supplies and be able to afford it. But we can't just deal with today's problem. We can't just put a sticking plaster on it. What we need to do is increase our energy supplies long-term. And that is why we will open up more supply in the North Sea, which the Honourable Gentleman has opposed. That is why we will build more nuclear power stations, which the Labour Party didn't do when they were in office. And that is why we will get on with delivering the supply as well as helping people through the winter.
0: It's worth noting that oil firms themselves have said they have so much money they don't know what to do with it, and BP's chief executive has said a windfall tax wouldn't change their investment plans. It's also worth noting that while Liz Truss pretends she's interested in energy supply, she spent her campaign railing against solar farms and wind power. But it was that dividing line over tax that would continue to dominate PMQs, and Starmer went on to attack Truss for her multi-billion pound cut to corporation
1: tax. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister claims to be breaking orthodoxy, but the reality is she's reheating George Osborne's failed corporation tax plan, protecting oil and gas profits and forcing working people to pay the bill. She's the fourth Tory Prime Minister in six years. The face at the top may change, but the story remains the same. There is nothing new about the Tory fantasy of trickle-down economics nothing new about this Tory Prime Minister who nodded through every single decision that got us into this mess and now says how terrible it is, and can't she see there's nothing new about a Tory Prime Minister who, when asked, who pays, says it's you, the working people of Britain. Well,
2: there's nothing new about a Labour leader who is calling for more tax rises. tax and spend. What I'm about is about reducing taxes, getting our economy growing, getting investment, getting new jobs for people right across the country. I'm afraid to say the right honourable gentleman doesn't understand aspiration. He doesn't understand understand that people want to keep more of it, their own money. And that is what I will deliver as Prime Minister.
0: I'm not really sure anyone watching is going to buy the idea that to be in favour of windfall taxes for excess profits for oil and gas giants is somehow anti-aspiration. I'm joined now by Owen Jones. Tell me, what did you make of Truss and Starmer's first head-to-head exchange?
3: Well, I suppose it relatively low energy because we're so used to bluster of Boris Johnson, which is obviously always a theatrical performance. And um, Liz Truss certainly does not offer theatrical performances. In a sense, she exceeded expectations because they were so low. Most, of course, famous for being inexplicably angry at the importing of cheese. But I think it'd be churlish not to point out that there is a clear ideological divide. It's not the ideological divide that we would like. And that's more to do with the fact that the Tories have moved significantly to the right on the economy. It's worth noting that a lot of the... Tory disillusionment with Boris Johnson centered on the fact that they thought he was too interventionist, that he'd shifted to the left on the economy compared to where most conservatives wanted to be in terms of cutting taxes and rolling back the state, which is what makes Tory hearts beat generally that little bit faster. And, you know, it's worth noting she's to the right of Margaret Thatcher, in a sense, back in 1981, because the Tories quite disastrously hiked in interest rates when the Bank of England wasn't independent. That meant that the banks got a huge amount of excess profits. So Thatcher levied a windfall tax on the banks. In the same way, today, of course, the energy firms, no defender of capitalism even could say that this is down to their entrepreneurship and their effort and their candor attitude. Facts completely out of their control, mean they got these huge excess profits, which he refuses to tax. Now, obviously, neither of them are going anywhere near ownership. That's why it's not the ideological divide that any of us want. It is interesting, though. Thinking about it in terms of just how the Tories shift the terms of debate in a way they can get away with. And unfortunately, Labour in any incarnation can't. In that, the whole basis of austerity was this kind of moral posturing um, about the idea that you can't impose debts on future generations for the choices of today. But by not imposing a windfall tax on the 170 billion excess profits of the energy companies, that's obviously what they're going to end up doing. So, you know, it just shows, of course, the contradictions at the heart of Tory ideology. They will shapeshift depending on at any time what they think is the best means of defending property interests. interest. But clearly, Liz Truss has positioned herself significantly to the right of Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak on the economy. And even though Labour aren't offering the compelling alternative, you and I and a lot of people watching this one, just by virtue of moving so far to the right... There's an ideological divide there, which is of, on, on a windfall tax on energy companies, which, as i said, is arguably more right-wing than Thatcher.
0: I mean, I presume Labour strategists are pretty happy today, right? Because, I mean, as you say, I think Liz Truss exceeded expectations in terms of presentation just because she managed to, you know, finish sentences without it being completely cringeworthy. There were no embarrassing pauses for people to, to clap. But the dividing lines that were set out there, I think Labour will be quite happy with. They said they're going to freeze energy bills. That's what everyone's really going to notice. They got there first. People, if the energy bills are frozen, they they might forget who came out with it first, but they can say they came out with it first. And then the dividing line is, would you tax the big companies to pay for it? And I think most people watching it will be on the side of the Labour Party. Yeah, obviously you should be taxing these windfall profits. It's going to be very hard for the Conservatives at the next general election when Labour come up with a plan for health or education or Climate change to say you're spending too much money because they can turn around and say, "Well, you borrowed 130 billion pounds instead of taxing the energy giant." So, I think electorally they seem like they're in quite a, a strong position. Or am I being too kind?
3: Just on Liz Truss's performance again. I mean, I know it's slightly superficial, but it does matter in politics to a degree. So, it might it's worth engaging with. The advantage he has is what the whips do, the Tory whips do in situations like this is they just tell Tory MPs to go blah 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 blah, sound like a dying animal and bray and and yell in in various often quite disturbing noises that they make. But that's why she can say anything she wants. It doesn't matter how uncharismatic she is. They've got an 80 seat, well, not an 80 seat majority anymore. It's been whittled down a bit, but a huge majority. And they went to public school and they learned very odd noises there. But in terms of, yeah, you're right. I think what Labour, this is where Labour need to be kind of canny about the position they've, they've got. Because what they can do, quite rightly, is say, we came up with an idea first Liz Truss in the Tory leadership contest was saying, I'm opposed to handouts. So in a sense, you know, you could argue there's, there's a U-turn there ideologically because she's going to have to provide de facto handouts to stop 45 million people going into fuel poverty and businesses across the country going bankrupt with massive unemployment triggering a huge cycle because as people become unemployed or fear being unemployed, they stop spending money. That takes money from other businesses they go under, and so on and so forth. She has no choice but to prevent the meltdown of British society. I think, therefore, any government would have been forced to do something along these lines, whatever the opposition said. that that's not how politics works. In politics, you say, we got here first. We came up with the idea that there's a big, big dividing line, which is these energy giants, they've got these vast profits they don't need, they didn't, don't deserve which can just pay very clearly for a massive support package for households and, and for businesses, whilst the Tories are just plonking it on future generations to pay very much against the whole ideological posturing and on austerity. Labour need to go in hard on that. They need to frame it somehow. You know, Take the dementia tax, we call it the dementia tax, which is Theresa May's disastrous plans as it turned out to fund social care. You know, originally, when that was announced, the right-wing press, the Daily Mail, all the rest of it, cheered it on. This is a great move. Look how courageous to May is. When it was called dementia tax, because it tapped into the idea that if you've got cancer, then you'd get care from the state. If you've got something like dementia, you wouldn't. And actually, you'd end up being levied with a tax that others wouldn't have. That really cut through. And I think they need to frame this somehow, that this is some sort of a levy or a tax or a mortgage on the British public that they have to pay off in order to prop up the energy firms, essentially, and make sure they can keep making profits they don't need, which are going to dividends to shareholders. £200 billion worth of dividends have gone to shareholders since 2010 with the energy companies instead of renewable energy, modernization, and all the rest of it. So they need to frame it somehow. They haven't got there yet. It depends, obviously, what the Tories announce, but they need to cleverly define it with a cut-through Catchy slogan, which sums up the dividing line, which is we're going to tax the big profiteers and they're going to force you to pay. I mean, just on that, the worry for Labour is because they're so averse to anything they regard as populism or anything which is going back to Corbynism or anything like that, you know, in terms of class politics, because actually what they should be arguing is class politics. These are these big billionaires, these big energy companies. They're screwing you over. They're making huge profits. We're going to take their profits and we're going to save your livelihoods. They don't want to do that, do they? Because they're scared that looks populist, it looks Corbynite. And the danger, therefore, for Labour is they won't come up with a catchy cut-through message just because they're scared of playing class politics. But this is about class politics. It's who's got wealth and power and who doesn't.
0: I'm not going to try and come up with the slogan on the spot, but I'm going to ask the audience to, can you think of the equivalent of a dementia tax for the Tories' unwillingness to tax the energy giants? Moving on to the next big story of the day, which is personnel. So let's go through that now. Is a Secretary, still Ben Wallace, quasi Kwarteng with the biggest job. Chancellor James Cleverleaf is Foreign Secretary. Suella Braverman is Home Secretary. Therese Coffey is both Deputy Prime Minister and Health Secretary. Nadim Zahawi moved from his brief stint as Chancellor of the Exchequer to being Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, with Michael Gove's old job. Simon Clarke and a number of Michael Gove's jobs, leveling up Secretary. The terrifying Jacob Rees-Mogg is Business Secretary, Kemi Badenoch, who impressed Tory members in the leadership race, is Trade Secretary, Chloe Smith, Work and Pensions, Alok Sharma, COP26 president, which most people, I think, are fairly surprised still exists as a cabinet role. Brandon Lewis is Justice, Kit Malthouse, Education, I think the fifth Education Secretary in a single year. Ranil Jayawarenda is Environment Secretary, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, Transport, Chris Heaton Harris, Northern Ireland, and then Penny Morden, big candidate in the, in the leadership race, Leader of the Commons, Michelle Donelan, Culture Secretary Robert Buckland, Wales and Alistair Jack, Scotland. One of the big talking points when it comes to that cabinet is the diversity of it, and in particular, the fact that it's the first time that no white man has occupied any of the great offices of state. So those include the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, the Home and Foreign Secretary. So none of them have a white man in for the first time ever. But the cabinet is not diverse in every way. Ben Kentish at LBC looked into the new cabinet's educational background. So it turns out that of the cabinet members, only five were educated in comprehensive schools, three were educated in grammar schools, and 23 went to private schools. So this is incredibly unrepresentative when it comes to education and presumably class. Theresa May, though, was keen to impress that, at least on gender, the Tories do come out better than Labour.
4: Can I ask my right honourable friend, why does she think it is that all three female prime ministers have been conservative? (laughs)
2: Thank my right honourable quen- friend for her fantastic question. I look forward to calling on her advice uh, from her time in office as I start as I start my work as I start my work as Prime Minister. It is it is quite extraordinary, isn't it, that there doesn't seem to be uh, the ability in the Labour Party to find a, uh, a female leader, or indeed a leader who doesn't come from North London. Yeah. I mean, I just,
0: I mean, the critique of ID politics is well known. Having a woman in charge doesn't mean this is going to be a feminist government. Having people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds doesn't mean this is going to be an anti-racist government. But is it embarrassing for, for Labour that they haven't had a woman leader? The Tories have now had three women prime ministers. And also, you know, the racial diversity on the front bench. You might not think it matters. Policy is obviously more important. But it, it's notable that Labour are far less impressive on that front. Should they be, should they be worried?
3: is humiliating, <laughs> to be honest about it. I mean, look, needs to be careful staying alone here with, with two white men. But, you know, if you look, for example, at the House of Commons own library research, 86% of the cuts of the Conservative government fell on women. That's because women were more likely, of course, to be employed in the public sector and to depend on, on the welfare state. So obviously, it's the, and again, if you think about austerity measures, working class communities tend to be more mixed and therefore cuts, you know, if you take black men at one point, over half of all young black men were unemployed because of austerity. So obviously the policies matter. But, you know, nonetheless, I think it is important to say I've, I voted for two female Labour leaders in my time. I voted for Dan Abbott actually in 2010, and I voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey in 2020. I say that because some, I would say, rather cynical members of the Labour right keep talking about the macho left. I'm not going to name them they keep talking about the macho left who are, you know, sexist and only keep imposing men. Those, that particular sentence voted for Keir Starmer in 2020. There were two other women available there to be leader of the Labour Party. The left, of course, the macho, masculine, misogynistic left voted for Rebecca Longbailey. That lot voted, of course, for Keir Starmer. But I think the point is, you know, look, the, the Labour Party is the part of the working class in its broadest possible sense. The working class, as I've said, is the most diverse part of British society. And I, I think what, as well as the lack of representation at the top, there's a problem that Labour takes many of its own voters for granted. If you take, for example, Muslim voters who are an absolute pillar of the Labour coalition, you know, in in the Batley and Spend by-election, Labour ran a toxic campaign. So did George Galloway. You expect that from George Galloway though. And they basically came out and said, well, Muslim voters are turning away from us because they're anti-Semitic and they're homophobic ludicrous. Those Muslim voters were voting for Labour in the 2000s under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown when Labour were actually in office passing gay rights legislation. So they were just sticking their fingers up at Muslim voters. So I think for Labour, it's more of a case of they take elements of their coalition for granted and actually a savvy Tory party can tap into that. It can say, look, they just, you're voting fodder for these guys. You just, they just, they expect you to turn up um, and just vote willy-nilly. They insult you at elections. The Tories could say this. You know, I, I say that because, you know, I remember in the first book I wrote about the demonization of the working class, I, I, I warned it that a populist right could tap into the, you know, the sense of working class people being demonized. And it's the same, I think, with minority people in this country, people of color, that the Tories could say, we've got, we've got representation at the top. Your, the party you vote for takes you for granted. Why not give us a second look? That could tap in, particularly to mid- more middle-class affluent elements of, of those communities who, at the moment, vote loyally for Labour because they quite understandably regard the Tories as, as as a more racist party, which institutes policies more damaging to their community. So I think Labour should be worried about their representation. They should be more worried about taking their voters for granted. They particularly do that, as I said, with Muslim voters who now they. They're riddled, I think, they're institutionally Islamophobic. I think repeated studies have shown that. The Labour Muslim Network have pointed that out. But yeah, I think it's humiliating for the Labour Party, even if what matters is the policies, and the policies coming out of the Tories have damaged women and people of colour disproportionately compared to everybody else.
0: I was just thinking, on a more mundane level, the Conservatives do change their leader a lot more often than the Labour Party. The Conservatives had so many leaders in the past 20 or so years. Labour have had about four. But there definitely is a much more deeper and, and fundamental structural problem when it comes to the Labour Party here. Let's go on to our next story. In a previous video, we explained why Jacob Rees-Mogg is so terrifying as business and energy secretary. That's because Mogg has spent the last decade arguing against, quote, climate alarmism and arguing to stick with coal and now saying he wants to drill every last drop from the North Sea. Mogg also flirted with climate denialism. In 2013, he wrote this. It is widely accepted that carbon dioxide emissions have risen, but the effect on the climate remains much debated, while the computer modeling that has been done to date has not proved especially accurate. Skeptics remember that computer modeling was behind the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the global financial crisis. Common sense dictates that if the Meteorological Office cannot forecast the next season's weather with any success, it is ambitious to predict what will happen decades ahead. That is the guy who is now Secretary of State for Business and Energy, clearly a climate sceptic, giving some really outdated arguments even back then. As I say, all pretty terrifying. And now it's got worse. That's because Liz Truss has hired another climate crank to her top team. Matthew Sinclair has been appointed as Truss's chief economic advisor. He's the former chief executive of the right-wing Taxpayers Alliance, which campaigns for cutting taxes and cutting government spending. In 2011, he also wrote this book. It's called Let Them Eat Carbon, The Price of Failing Climate Change Policies and How Government and Big Business Profit From Them. The only review on the front cover is from Britain's most famous climate sceptic, former Chancellor under Thatcher, Nigel Lawson. And the book makes the case that climate change policies are a waste of money. The argumentation inside the book is also, to say the least, novel. Sinclair writes this. NASA administrator Michael Griffin made a point back in May 2007 that hasn't been taken nearly seriously enough. This is the point from Michael Griffin. I guess I would ask which human beings, where and when, are to be accorded the privilege of deciding that this particular climate that we have right here today, right now, is the best climate for all other human beings. I think that's a rather arrogant position for people to take. So that's the quote from Michael Griffin that Liz Truss's economic advisor has chosen. And then he goes on to say, in other words, the temperatures we face today may not be the ideal conditions for humanity to live and flourish. Right now, our patterns of living and working are set up for the kind of temperature that the planet has provided over the last few hundred years. Getting used to the new temperatures will mean a costly transition, but over time, those costs are likely to subside, at least to some extent. There is no particular reason to think that the particular balance of the ecosystem right now is necessarily the best for us. Elsewhere in the book, Sinclair wrote this, Within a certain range, the long-term effects of higher temperatures and greater greenhouse gas concentrations will probably be mixed. Equatorial regions might suffer, but it is entirely possible that this will be balanced out by areas like Greenland, which might become green again, and Siberia, where people will be better able to exploit its huge natural resources. Now, to be fair to Sinclair, I don't want to take him out of context. He doesn't suggest we should dismiss the suffering of people in those equatorial regions, and he's not saying flooding and droughts in parts of the world where billions of people currently live should be ignored. He's making a rather Abstract point about how much we should be concerned about climate change in the very, very long term. But the point of the book as a whole is clear climate change isn't as bad as everyone is making it out, and climate action just isn't worth the money. So, this man, I will remind you again, Liz Truss's chief economic advisor. Owen, oh, I want your take on this. Is climate change the area where a Liz Truss premiership should cause most concern?
3: Yeah. I mean, in the campaign, she said she was going to issue 130 new drilling licenses to oil and gas companies. Look, even if you support that ludicrous position, that's obviously very bad for the future of the planet on its own terms. It's stupid because it takes the best part of three decades to get that energy on stream into people's homes. So it doesn't do anything for the here and now at all. Renewable energy is much cheaper. If you look, for example, at a new renewable energy capacity, 48 quid per megawatt hour, pretty good cost of an gas-fired power station surged for around 450 quid per megawatt hour. So just basic mass, that's 10 times more expensive. I mean, what Liz just said in the campaign too, she obviously went for nuclear plants, they're far more expensive. The toxic nuclear waste aside, you've got to find dumping grounds to keep them safe for thousands of years. They still take so long to build. They wouldn't do anything for the current emergency either. But she also talked about changing planning laws to hinder the development of, of solar power, which again is very cheap. Uh, she said, our fields shouldn't be full of solar panels. So our streets will be filled instead, of course, with hungry kids and cold pensioners. I don't know why people have a problem with visually with solar panels. I always think they look kind of cool. She said the same again with with um, with wind farms. I mean, this predates her. You know, David Cameron changed the conservative logo to a tree. You know, he went around the Arctic hugging huskies. You know, but then he said, let's cut the green crap. And part of that was... There were 2 million households getting insulated in 2012, mass insulation program. Uh, and that plummeted to less than 100,000 in 2020, a massive collapse, ridiculous sabotage. That would have meant cheaper energy bills. It would have been good for the climate. It would have meant more skilled jobs. So obviously that vandalism is, is predates Liz Truss. But, you know, it's the same with wind farms. Again, if you look at the polling, huge support for wind farms, including amongst conservative voters, including interesting people who live near wind farms, which I think is quite key. But again, because of the ideological obsessions of the conservative backbenchers, they put a de facto ban on the building of onshore uh, wind farms. And, you know, it's kind of odd, this, because you kind of think, what, why? I mean, partly they've got a a million quid from these big (laughs) fossil fuel companies since uh, the last election. I think that has something to do with it. I also think they just essentially associate renewable energy with kind of the left, with kind of vague leftish ideas, even though it's cheaper, even though it would address the current crisis, and even though it would be good, of course, for saving the human race from extinction. Um, And they just associate oil and gas with kind of right-wing machismo. I mean, I, I know that's kind of a slightly crude analysis, but I don't really understand, other than the funding they get, why they have this ideological obsession with opposing solar panels, and wind farms, but she made it very clear in the campaign that she's against that, and she wants oil and gas, which does nothing for the here and now at all. Nothing. Literally nothing.
0: We talked about that a few times on this show before, and how I think you can only view it through a really bizarre cultural perspective. And I say culture because it shouldn't be a culture. I mean, I, I normally think these cultural arguments are silly anyway, but this one is particularly bizarre, because you do have the spectre of Tory audiences in all of the hustings, When Liz Truss says, we're going to allow fracking, they all go, yes, huge, huge round of applause. And when she says, we're going to ban solar farms, yes, yes, huge round of applause. And I don't understand on what world it's more pleasant to live next to a fracking plant than it is to live next to a solar farm. So I think you're right, Owen. The only explanation here is that they associate fracking with things being right-wing and they associate solar panels and wind farms with things being left-wing and they don't want to see left-wing things. They want to see right-wing things, even if the right-wing things are killing them and are actually far more noisy and, and bad for your health. Maybe that's an analogy for Tory members.
3: You know, I think also part of it is, look, I mean, I know a lot of the time we try and look through kind of economic interests. And I do think, you know, the fact that they get all this money from oil and gas companies is kind of something to do with it. But I think a lot of it is the modern right kind of gets off or defines itself by how much it can offend the left in the broadest possible sense. It's almost like someone letting off in a, in a lift and going up to you and going, disgusting, isn't it? But like they get off on this bizarre kind of revulsion and they use that to mobilize their own base. So the fact they go on about fracking and all the rest of it, they know that's going to wind up their opposition and they think that the resulting fury will help, I think, mobilize their own base. But you're right. I mean, fracking just means what? Earthquakes. It means, you know, England's green and pleasant lands getting dug up rather than just having some nice looking wind farms and solar panels. But I do think it is to do that. I think it is literally culture war stuff. I, don't, I, I think it's as crude as that.
0: Let's move to our next story from one extremist to another. Suella Braverman is Liz Truss's new Home Secretary. She takes the job following the resignation of Priti Patel, who used the role to make it more difficult to legally protest in the UK and came up with the horrific Rwanda deportation scheme for refugees. But Braverman could be even worse. These are the reasons you should be worried. Reason number one. In 2019, Braverman gave a speech to the Euroskeptic think tank, The Bruges Group, where she said this. We are engaging in many battles right now. As conservatives, we are engaged in a battle against cultural Marxism, where banning things is becoming de rigueur, where freedom of speech is becoming a taboo, where our universities, quintessential institutions of liberalism, are being shrouded in censorship and a culture of No platforming. That's right, the new Home Secretary used the term cultural Marxism, an anti-Semitic trope usually used by those on the extreme right. When asked if she stood by the use of the slur, despite its connection to the far right, she doubled down, saying, quote, Yes, I do believe we are in a battle against cultural Marxism, as I said. Less than a year later, Boris Johnson made Braverman attorney general in his 2019 cabinet, and almost immediately she began widening post-Brexit divisions and concocting culture wars. One of her earliest targets was the judiciary. Now, for context, this was the Daily Mail's front page after the Supreme Court ruled in 2016 that Parliament had to agree to the UK, triggering Article 50, the legal instrument that began our withdrawal from the EU. And again, this was its front page after the court ruled that Johnson's 2019 prorogation of Parliament was illegal. Now, arch-Brexiteer Braverman took both cases to show in her eyes that the courts were too powerful and set out to limit the ways that judges could hold the government to account. So in 2019, Braverman wrote this, Courts should operate to curb abuse of power by government, but if a small number of unelected, unaccountable judges continue to determine wider public policy, putting them at odds with elected decision makers, our democracy cannot be said to be representative. Parliament's legitimacy is unrivaled and the reason why we must take back control, not just from the EU, but from the judiciary. In other words, the government should be the one to decide when it can be held to account. And, aside from the power of judges, Braverman has a pretty cavalier approach to the rule of law in general. The government's Northern Ireland Protocol Bill was widely thought to breach international law because it broke the terms of the Withdrawal Agreement. But Braverman, helpfully for Boris Johnson, advised the government that the bill was totally legal. As Attorney General, she also made a habit of intervening in a dubious manner in ongoing legal cases. For example, following the row over Dominic Cummings' lockdown excursions, she tweeted this. Protecting one's family is what any good parent does. The 10 Downing Street statement clarifies the situation and it is wholly inappropriate to politicise it. So this was the person who really was in charge of of the rule of law. And such a lax attitude was not applied to people outside of government. After the acquittal of protesters who toppled a statue of Edward Colston, she threatened to refer the case to the Court of Appeal, not on any legal grounds, but simply because she and the Tories didn't like the result. So, that was Braverman as Attorney General, but what will she do in the Home Office? Well, of course, it's early days, but we can get a sense of her priorities by seeing how she pitched herself when seeking to become prime minister.
5: There's many, many priorities, but I think fundamentally, we need to deliver some proper tax cuts so that people can be uh, dealing with the cost of living challenges in a more feasible way. We need to shrink the size of the state and cut government spending so we can curb inflation. We need to solve the problem of the boats across the channel. We need to stop a foreign court interfering in our domestic affairs. We need to make sure the Brexit opportunities are felt for everybody in this country. And lastly, we need to get rid of all of this woke rubbish and actually get back to a country where describing a man and a woman in terms of biology does not mean that you're going to lose your job.
0: Yes, we have all the problems facing Britain. Braverman's priority was demonising asylum seekers and tackling, quote, woke rubbish, whatever that means. On asylum seekers, she's pledged to double down on the Rwanda scheme and wants to put more refugees in detention centres. So anyone hoping Pretty Patel's departure will be a benefit on that front is is going to be disappointed. And the reference there to the foreign court was to the European Court of Human Rights. That was a regular target during her leadership campaign.
5: We can't fix uh, the problem of illegal migration because of human rights claims and because of an interventionist politicised foreign court in Strasbourg, which is intervening to force our domestic policies, as we saw last month on the Rwanda flight. And I'm afraid the only solution to this problem, and if we want to be honest with the British people, uh, on delivering on Brexit, on taking back control over our our borders, is that we do now need to leave the European Convention. I've pledged that, and I challenge all my fellow candidates to make that similar pledge. None of them have.
0: Yet it's not just foreign judges that have found themselves in Braverman's line of fire. And she thinks the problem of a rights culture starts closer to home. Just last month she gave this speech to the right-wing think tank policy exchange.
5: There is now a serious risk that the fight for rights is undermining democracy and may well harm the very people for whom the fight was originally intended to benefit. In the context of a mature democracy with a responsive and pragmatic common law tradition, is it always right that minority groups impose their claims upon the rest of society. We need to make sure that the costs of protecting rights are worth the payoff. The judicially expanded European Convention on Human Rights and New Labour's Human Rights Act marked a radical change in how fundamental rights are protected in the UK with alarming constitutional and practical consequences. We now have a rights culture in a way that did not exist prior to 1998. Aspects of this are causing confusion and distress.
0: A rights culture is causing confusion and distress. I mean, this is our new Home Secretary. She really hates judges and she really, really hates minority rights. How scared should we be?
3: I have to say it's her appointment that worried me the most in terms of the Cabinet because it really shows that this government are going to use the machinery of the state to wage you know, the bully pulpit of the state, if you like, to wage a ceaseless culture war in a way that Boris Johnson's lot played with, toyed around with. But this really puts rocket boosters under it. I mean, actually, what she did, there was quite useful. Because, you know, the term culture war is often quite... It's not a very useful term. Um, it's, It's imprecise. And I think it should be described as a backlash against the claims of minorities for rights for justice, for equality, for emancipation, for liberation, whatever you want to call it. And that's actually what she was really talking about in her policy exchange talk. I mean, it's, it's backlash, you know, it's backlash weaponized by the political right in order to deflect from from class politics, essentially. That's, that's, that's what they use it for. It's clear with trans people and trans rights where that's going to lead. It should be noted, if you look at the polling of conservative voters, let alone the rest of the British population, The the whole kind of stigmatization, the really vicious war that's been waged against trans people by the media and increasingly by the political elite, it doesn't have much purchase amongst the population. People just aren't bothered about it, generally speaking. That's not going to stop them having a really good go at it. You know, It was more successful with gay rights in the 80s, to be brutally honest, Michael, because gay people were far less popular in the 1980s. The British Social Attitude Survey showed that. Gay people became negative attitudes, got progressively worse in the 1980s. By 1987, over two-thirds of the population believed homosexuality was always wrong or mostly wrong, and only 10% thought otherwise. It was only by 1993 that it got back to its 1983 levels. So when Thatcher introduced Section 28, which was a cultural move, if you like, that was actually very popular and caused kind of chaos- amongst progressive, or kind of amongst the, the, the Labour coalition, it did cause problems. Patricia Hewitt, who works for Neil Kinnock, wrote a letter uh, saying this was costing us dearly amongst um, elderly voters. I mean, pretty gruesome, cynical thing to say, but I mean, it was probably true, to be honest with you. I don't think that's the... Even though they're going to do that with trans people, and it will be brutal, consequences for trans people, hate crimes against trans people have quadrupled in the last few years you and I both know trans people and non-binary people who privately say they don't feel comfortable being in this country anymore and and are, are doing or have made active plans to leave. They're going to make this more of a hostile environment and they're clearly using this as a wedge issue. It'll be interesting to see what other rights they go for, what other minorities they go for and how they weaponize them. They will try and protect themselves by pointing to representation at the top of the Tory leadership. So I think this will be quite a bitter lesson in terms of, representation at the top and actually the impact on people's lives of actual policies because what they're going to do is tap into the prejudices and insecurities of sections of the population at the claims of rights of minorities and they're going to use that to try and put the labor party in the back foot and I'm afraid knowing the labor leadership that is pretty likely to be successful because rather than having a kind of forceful courageous pushback they're likely to get themselves twisted into all sorts of incoherent positions as they worry about alienating some voters, but also mindful of the fact that lots of their voters obviously support the rights of minorities. So that's what Sorella Braverman represents. She represents culture war from the bully pulpit of government and the state. They're going to accelerate it. If you thought it was bad under Boris Johnson, then I'm afraid you're going to be in for a pretty gruesome ride, because this is going to get significantly more brutal, vicious, and it will be in tandem with the Daily Mail, The Telegraph, The Times, which is actually one of the worst offenders despite its claims for respectability, The Express, The Sun. It's not going to be fun, I'm afraid.
0: How do you think this is going to interact with all the other crises that the government is, is facing? Because, I mean, it's an odd thing to say. But you could see a silver lining in the fact that you've got this cost of living crisis. Everything is collapsing. Because I do think it seems particularly ridiculous when the Tories do try and make elections about trans rights or... All these cultural issues. Because if that was their electoral strategy in, in 2024, it would essentially fail, right? Because people do have much more material things to think about and, well, and that they're worried about. Mm-hmm. So Labour could quite easily just say, this isn't the issue we're fighting this election on. Why are you talking about this? Everyone cares about energy bills. Everyone cares about the fact that they can't get the the operation they're due on the NHS. This is this is a minor issue. Stop talking about it. I feel like the fact that we're in such a crisis moment will actually make that easier for the Labour Party to do, and maybe the Tories just won't bother trying to exploit it as much because it's a bit of a dead end for them. I don't know. What do you think about that?
3: I get, I get what you. I mean, I get what you're saying. I mean, obviously, transphobia doesn't feed your kids, does it? Transphobia doesn't pay the bills. Transphobia isn't an answer to people's everyday problems. Neither there's racism. Neither was homophobia. No bigotry, no form of racism ever is. But the reason that the the political arms of economic elites deploy these attempts to scapegoat and to, to stigmatize minorities is precisely often at moments of economic and social distress, because they they believe that if people's, you know, attention and, and fury is focused on minorities that aren't hurting them at all, then they won't be thinking about the various, you know, the the, the oil and gas companies who are making massive profits and being protected by the Conservative Party. So you're, you're right, on one level, obviously, rationally it's patently absurd we are in obviously in a protracted worst crisis since the war i know that's that's been for that's been going on for quite a while in in various different forms the pandemic and then the aftermath but it is in moments of distress i mean you could say you know look back in history of terrible terrible moments of national trauma and various you know right-wing parties and the elites focusing on on scapegoating and attacking minorities. But that's why they do it. They're doing it because they know it deflects attention, it deflects anger, and therefore it's good for the political right to weaponize. So, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid they will accelerate it. It might not work, you know. You're absolutely right. As I've said, transphobia does not have the purchase that homophobia did. I don't think people realize, including, you know, I'm older than you, obviously, but uh, geriatric millennial, people don't realize just how much, you know, pervasive homophobia and how toxic it was not that long ago. It still obviously exists, but it's nowhere near what it was in the past. And transphobia is not up there. So yeah, I see it's not, you know, as effective, but it won't stop them trying. And the issue is not that will it in the end succeed? Because I think trans people will get their rights and and and, and security in the end. It's just how much damage and hurt can be done along the way. And I'm afraid that's quite a lot. And that's what the Tories are going to try to do, whether or not it succeeds.
0: Let's go to our next story. Nadine Doris has stepped down as Culture Secretary. That's good news for the country, but bad news for those of us who still get a kick out of this kind of solid gold content.
1: People think he's the first Prime Minister ever to have been found guilty of um, an an offence, or crime.
4: Oh, no, I'm sure there are lots of Prime Ministers who've received fixed penalty notices for lots of things. Speeding? No? It's a fixed penalty notice. I've certainly had two. So, I'll hold my hands up to them. Sorry, I didn't have fixed penalty notices for Partygate. <laughs> they were for speeding.
0: <laughs> have you spoken to the Prime Minister recently,
3: in the last 24 hours?
4: Why? Why are you asking me that question? I'd like to know. Um, on, we've We've communicated.
0: This, I'm, not, I'm really confused. Is that difficult question? I'm just asking if you've spoken to the Prime Minister in the last 24 hours. We have
4: communicated.
3: Okay. What has he communicated to you?
4: Well, that's, that's... I'm not going to tell you the extent of my communications with the Prime Minister. I mean, I've answered your question. We have communicated. What
1: is your next question? How can you have a Prime Minister just repeating fake news like that? Oh... Um,
4: I have no idea the background of Keir Starmer, and I know it's that not he... It's true,
1: and the Prime Minister repeated it. It's an old meme that's just repeated by... You know,
4: there were things that Keir Starmer works. said that someone who was the former Director of Public Prosecutions shouldn't have said at the dispatch box. He, didn't say he that wasn't true. He shouldn't have prejudged what a MET investigation is going to find. He didn't say
1: anything that was untrue. Well, Boris I, Johnson said something that was untrue. He said things he that were inappropriate. the House today.
4: I, I don't believe that's the case. So I would argue that to say... That just because Channel 4 has been established as a public service broadcaster and just because it's in receipt of public money, we should never kind of audit the future of Channel 4 and we should never evaluate how Channel 4 looks in the future. And whether or not it's a sustainable and viable model, it's quite right that the government should do that.
0: But but, but Channel 4 is not like the BBC. Uh, It's not in receipt of licence fee money. It, it, It makes its money from commercial operations.
4: And... So,
0: yeah. although it's, yeah, and that. <laughs> Owen, <laughs> I mean, is it okay to say that I'm going to miss her? Can I say that? Can I say I'm going to miss Nadine Doris?
3: She's quite camp, isn't she? I think she kind of <laughs> appeals to us because we're both sort of gay men. And she's kind of, she's got this kind of chaotic, kind of, I don't know, just use chaos. She's inadvertently... Look, I've been on TV with her a few times and there's some people I've been on who I just, I really can't stand her for the obnoxious and ridiculous. I can't hate her. I I know her politics are terrible. I know she was trying to privatise Channel 4. She didn't even understand what Channel 4 is when she was trying to privatise it, but she was trying to. But she's just, you know, if she wasn't so toxic and right-wing, she'd just become this sort of pinup for gay men because of her... Chaotic camp <laughs> interventions, which are obviously self-evidently completely ludicrous, and the idea she was ever near high office is itself pretty disturbing. But there's something just so camply amusing about. Her, I can't actually physically hate her.
0: The first clip we showed is actually my favourite one. That's just from a couple of weeks ago. That was uh, oh, that's that's late Doris content. Where she says, "Oh, I've got a fixed notice penalty, not for party gate not for part for speeding, for speeding." It's like It's, I funny. Love it's so funny. Our audience shouldn't worry too much though. Doris won't be completely disappearing from the spotlight because as is the nature with British politics and the British establishment, people fail upwards. She is reportedly going to get a job for life in the House of Lords. So all I can say is TV producers, please keep inviting this woman on. She might not be in the cabinet anymore. She's going to be in the House of Lords. I think she's going to focus on writing her books, but keep getting her on the telly. If if anyone needs to defend Liz Truss, it should be Nadine Doris. Because she's good at it. She's entertaining at it. Some final thoughts, Owen, before we go.
3: On anything? Um, well, I think it's... Brief part, I, like, I think we should be honest now. Like I'm someone who is, well, I was going to say, not being a fan of Keir Starmer. I stand by everything I've said about Keir Starmer. Let me be absolutely clear about that. But my view was, before, back in September, I read a column saying so you know, lots of things. Dishonest he is, unprincipled he is, offers no vision he doesn't. Uh, doesn't really believe in anything, stand by that. But I said he's unelectable, and that was true at the time, but the Conservatives have essentially doused themselves in petrol and set themselves on fire. There is an unprecedented cost of living crisis, which comes after the longest squeeze in living standards since the Napoleonic War. British workers are going to be poorer than they were back in 2008. Only Greece of the industrialised nations has suffered such a long squeeze in wages. So even though he's not offering a clear vision, uh, given the Tories have shifted so far to the right, if they do this package, which they will to help to stop society collapsing, which is what would happen if they didn't, Labour do have a dividing line, which is who pays for it? We say the big energy companies and and you say basically the British people. So, you know, they do have an opening. If they take over, they're not going to do anything to transform British society. They will fiddle at the edges. And I think, you know, what will be interesting if that happens is from the left's perspective, to disappoint our critics will just be louder than ever because what will happen if you get a Labour government is the expectations will be raised in terms of obviously the Tories are gone for a lot of younger people but then the clash between what they deliver very little and people's expectations will I think you know the sorts of movements you already see like enough is enough which is filling a vacuum left by the Labour leadership's fate often inspiring alternative that's when they really come into their own actually because at the moment a lot of people think, well, no, no, we've got to focus on the Tories. They're in power. They're in power. That obviously makes sense. But when the Labour Party are in power in a moment of total crisis and they're not offering solutions to deal with it, that's when I think those mass movements come into their own. So I think it's all to play for, not because Keir Starmer has done anything. He hasn't. He's minus 25 approval ratings, according to YouGov. Not a popular guy. He's not played some political blinder, but he's been handed the best possible circumstances An opposition leader has had since World War II, which is a a governing party in power for a very long time, convulsed with scandal, and in the midst of an unprecedented squeeze in wages. You know, if they completely met with a prime minister who, I'm sorry, just quickly on that, I got David Cameron. He had the sort of Tony Blair oratory. I got Theresa May before she imploded. Steady pair of hands public-spirited vibe she kind of played up on. I got Boris Johnson, one in a Labour city, London, it's become more Labour since, but nonetheless, Um, and he appealed to certain demographics in marginal seats the Tories needed. Liz Tross, don't really see a massive strengths. I'm, I'm struggling with that one. Maybe I've got it completely wrong. I don't see them. It's an open goal for the Labour Party. So if they miss, they really have messed this one up because actually those circumstances should point to Labour forming a government of some description. The Tories don't have Coalition partners. I don't buy the idea that Lib Dems will go into coalition with them after another election. I think the Lib Dems and Labour have done a de facto pact. So I think it's all to play for for the Labour Party. And if they mess this up, they might as well just file for moral and political bankruptcy. Because if not now, then when? As I've said, I think the left come into their own when there's a Labour government um, for the reasons I've set out.
0: Very good. Lots to work for, lots to look forward to. Owen Jones, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It has been a pleasure.
3: It has been a massive honor. Nice one, Michael. Take care of yourself. I'll see you very soon.
0: I'll see you very soon. Keep growing that stubble. Of course, you can find Owen's own channel on YouTube. And thank you all for your comments tonight and for joining us. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.